have two Bible readings this morning. The first one from John chapter 11. The second one will be in Ephesians chapter 2. And then Dave will come and share with us from the Word. John 11, starting at verse 17 through to 44. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if I believe <clears throat> did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may, be, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes, <clears throat> take off the grave clothes and let him go. We'll move over to Ephesians chapter 2, reading the first 10 verses.
As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying, <coughs> gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. <coughs> it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we have just heard your word. And Lord, your word is truth. And Lord, we pray now that as we open it, that our understanding, our hearts and our minds will be shaped by your truth. Lord, it is so easy for us to do what's right or think what's right in our own eyes. But Lord, we want to be men and women who think rightly and so live rightly, having grasped that your truth. And so, Father, we need your help now. We ask that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would reveal to us, Lord, the glories of your gospel, the glories of your grace, all that you've done for us in your son. In his name we pray. Amen. So have your Bibles open there to Ephesians chapter 2, for that's where we'll be looking today. But I'll start with this question, is salvation all of God? Is salvation all of God? I'm sure we would all readily say yes, salvation is all of God. But I'm going to ask the same question in a different way. Is being saved all God's work? Is being saved all God's work? It's the same question. In other words, when it comes to you being saved, are you able to be credited for anything? For having done something? Or is it all God's work? I remember many years ago as a child saying to my dad, I wanted to give my life to Jesus. I distinctly remember being led by my dad into my parents' bedroom, sitting on the edge of the bed. My dad was on my left. And after we sat down, I remember my dad saying quite clearly to me and sharing solemnly, this is a prayer that I need to make. My parents can't pray this for me. Dad can't pray this for me. This is between me and God. And then I distinctly remember coming before the Lord in prayer saying, sorry for my sins. 
thanking Jesus for dying on the cross for my sins and asking God to help me to live for Jesus. I made a decision. It was an act of my will. Through prayer, I reached out to God that I might be saved. Surely that would mean I can be credited for something. I made the right choice. I made the right decision. In fact, I made the defining decision. For if I had not done that, I wouldn't be saved. It would seem as though God has done everything. He's done all the heavy lifting. But if I'm to be saved, I need to make that crucial step. The signing of the deal, so to say. And for eternity, I can pat myself on the back saying, you made the right decision. If you hadn't have done that, I'd be in hell. Is that biblical? Is that the way the Bible teaches us to think? Is salvation a bit God and a bit us? So that in some way we work together. He does his part, but then we do our part. Some sort of cooperation. Because if salvation is dependent upon me for anything at any step, then it's not all God. Or is it all God? And that's the question or the questions I want us to be able to answer this morning as we open the Bible, as we hear what God has to say. Does salvation by grace mean God gets the credit for the work of preparing and offering a free gift of salvation, but we can get even a little credit for reaching out and taking it? Or does salvation by grace mean God in some way gets the credit for everything? Even me being able to share in it. I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, and I encourage you to have your Bibles open in front of you, we can grasp a biblical understanding of grace, an understanding that shows us just how grand or huge God's grace is, an understanding of God's grace that would surely stir our souls to worship him and to give him praise. And so three steps, three ways we're going to Step our way through this passage this morning, verses 1 to 3. We're going to consider our condition before we were saved, because the Bible tells us that. Then from 4 down to the beginning of chapter 10, we're going to consider the grace of God that saved us out of that condition. And then we'll finish off the rest of chapter 10 thinking how we respond, because that's essentially where the rest of the letter goes, how we respond. So firstly, what was your condition, my condition, before we were saved? What does the Bible have to say? Because one of the steps, this is the first step or one of the steps that we need to get in place right if we're going to grasp the magnitude of God's grace. The more in trouble you find yourself, the more thankful you are for the help. The bigger hole you've dug for the self, the more grateful you are for being lifted out of it. So we've got to see how big was the hole we were in. How big was the trouble that we found ourselves in? For us to understand that, the bigger that hole, the bigger God's grace becomes. And so what does the Bible say about our condition before we were saved? And in, in our passage this morning, verses 1 to 3 tell us. It was dreadful. So let's consider that word dread. 
got five things, D-R-E-A-D. Our condition before we were saved was full of this stuff, so that's why I'm saying dreadful. Firstly, D, we were dead. Verse 1 begins. Follow with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. The word dead is the word used to describe a corpse, a dead person, lifeless, someone who's unresponsive, just like Lazarus in the tomb. We're going to keep visiting Lazarus's condition. The Bible says we were spiritually dead. We were spiritually like Lazarus in the tomb, lifeless and unresponsive. We had no spiritual life. We were dead and unresponsive to the things of God. Second R. Bible says we were rotten. Because we were dead in trespasses and sins. There's nothing redeeming about sin. God in the Bible speaks about sin as like bad fruit. And we've got to see this from God's perspective. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the good people, but there's nothing pleasing to God. There's no pleasant aroma about the Pharisees. In Jesus' day, the very religious people were the Pharisees, yet there was nothing pleasing about their aroma before God. Dead spiritually, we were like the walking dead. Zombie-like, if you want to say it in spiritual things. Dead to God, living a godless life, full of trespasses, which means the lives we lived, how we lived, deviated from God's word. We were, our lives were full of sin, which meant the way we lived fell short of God's word. Before we were saved, our life was marked by ungodliness. A rotten life. E. Before we were saved, we were enslaved. Read on with me. I'll start. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were enslaved. To the flesh, our flesh, the world and the devil. Verse 3 speaks about what it was to be slaves to our flesh. Before you were saved, you and I carried out the desires of our body, of our mind. Being spiritually dead, the controlling influence in your life was your sinful nature. You decided what was right. You did what you thought was right. You lived to please the passions of your flesh. And so your life was marked by immorality, greed, lust, lies, slander, gossip, selfishness, and on we can go. You loved yourself. You loved the world. You loved sin. That's what the Bible says. We're slaves to the world. We followed it where the world led us. We were led. Like the Pied Piper, the world played its tune and we naturally followed behind. This world does not love God. 
And so being dead in trespasses and trespasses and sins, we eagerly embraced worldly values, worldly beliefs, principles, and ideologies because they pleased your sinful nature. We lapped it up. And maybe you were taught worldly things at home or at school or at university. University abounds in these things. Movies and TVs abound in these things. Magazines. The world sang godless tunes and we sang along. And it says we're enslaved to the devil too. We followed him. We think we're so free. The sinful world is so proud of being individuals. But the reality is, before you're saved, you follow the devil. Here he's called the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The Bible divides the world into two families. Either your father's the devil and you're one of his children, or your father is God and you're one of his children. And before you were saved, you were a son of disobedience, a child of the devil. You live to do his work. Jesus speaks to the religious leaders and calls their father the devil. You readily and eagerly gave into his lies and temptations, just like Eve in the garden, because they pleased your sinful nature. All the devil had to do was cast a line and you would follow it on and you bite. So before we were saved, that's why I want your Bible open. This is not me. This is coming from the Bible. If you can't see it here, let it go. But the Bible is saying we were dead, rotten, and enslaved. And fourthly, the Bible says, up to the A, we were abominable. Because verse 3 is very stark. It's very sobering. We were by nature children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. The devil has us in this lie that always thinks we're better than we are. Still remember leading up to Christmas one year and out of England had this article read about this boy was to sing Amazing Grace and they said there's no way this boy can sing, this pretty little boy. God saved a wretch like me. He's no wretch. He's cute. No, the Bible says before we were saved, we were all by nature children of wrath. Created in the image of God, yet we lived an outrageous, scandalous life in his world. We were vile, we were detestable against God. Rather than living for God's glory, the Bible actually says we were the stench of death. And that was your nature. God says that was your nature. You were a sinner and you loved your sin, not because of nurture, but because of your nature. Conceived in sin, the Bible says, we came forth in sin and we lived in sin and the world so freely and easily nurtured us in sin because by nature we were corrupt. We did not desire God. And so fifthly, D-R-E-A-D, we were damned. It says we were by nature children of wrath. under God's condemnation, rightly fit to suffer eternal punishment in hell. We were headed for hell. We're on the wide road. 
We had no desire for God. We loved our sin. We wanted to serve our flesh, the world and the devil, wanted nothing to do with God. And who are we to fear? God. We don't have to fear the devil. Sinners don't have to fear the devil. We're told here we need to fear God because God, it's God's wrath. Sinners ought fear God for he is holy and good and righteous. And it's on, that, on account of that very nature that his righteous anger is aroused and must consume wickedness. And the day is coming when he will rid the world of evil. How? By ridding the world of sinners. And so before Christian, before we became a Christian, before we were saved, we were children of wrath. I encourage us to meditate on those three verses. Dread. Dead, rotten, enslaved, abominable and damned. And that filled our life and so dreadful. And I pray we hear these truths this morning because many in churches today don't want to speak of these truths. It's as if the Bible never has these verses. Either ignore them or be silent on them. But God's word is plain. In these opening chapters, we are being exhorted to give glory to God and praise to God for his incredible grace. And so we are given a reality check. We're reminded of something so that we might give God the right glory, the right praise. These verses are essentially teaching us what's called the doctrine of total depravity. Not that we were as sinful as we could be, but we couldn't be more lost. We were totally lost. Nothing in us that sought after God. And it makes full sense of that verse, those verses that we know so well. As it is written, there is no one righteous. And that's not only about our outward actions, that's from our inmost being. There's no one who has anything righteous in them. No one understands. That's right, because we're spiritually dead. No one comprehends the way of God. No one seeks God because we love sin. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's what these verses are teaching us and telling us why. These verses should humble us. We should never look at anyone in the world and think we're any better than them because no one's better than anyone else because it says we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But for the grace of God, you and I in our natural state were no better than Judas or Hitler. We might not have sinned in all the ways they did, but we're just as dead and damned, together with them children of wrath, serving the devil. And so before we consider God's grace, God wants us to consider these verses that we might truly acknowledge our condition. Because our Yes, we had a problem that we could not pay the price for our sin, but that falls very short of the problem, the picture, or the picture the Bible paints. These verses teach us that we actually did not want to be saved. Spiritually dead, unresponsive to the things of God, we were lovers of sin. We naturally absorbed to oppose God. 
In other words, we were not like someone drowning in the ocean, crying out to God for help. Rather, we were wallowing in our sin and we loved it. And we didn't want God. And so the picture of biblical salvation, yes, is not of a man drowning at sea, reaching up to heaven. Because no man reaches up to heaven. Rather, it's of you and me, the sinful world left to ourselves, continually indulging in our sin, even shaking our fist at God, even cursing God. And so the picture that we have here from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we have to conclude, left to ourselves, no one can be saved. No one will be saved. No one wants to be saved. No one seeks God. Once we start to grasp that condition, once we grasp what the Bible says about biblically what we were before we were saved, then we're going to be able to better grasp and understand the grace of God, the glory of God's grace, because this leads to the second part. But God, what does the Bible truly say about the grace of God? Given we were so lost, it must be great. And that's why verse 4 begins, but God, that is the defining step. That is the transitional, the pivotal thing, but God. The two most wonderful words, they're up there at the beginning. Many translations begin verse 4, but God. That's how it is in the original. After painting a picture that leaves us in a dreadful state, dire and lost and helpless, the key step, the pivotal thing is but God. But God. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Those two words, but God, is all about God's grace. All about God's grace. And three things, verses 4 to 10, that we'll focus on this morning that tell us about God's grace is it's unconditional. It's sovereign and it's abundant. So firstly, unconditional. Remember how verse 3 ended? We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like the rest of mankind. There was nothing that made you and I distinct, better, more worthy. It's the great leveller. There was nothing but God. We didn't deserve to be saved any more than Judas or Hitler, but God. Salvation has nothing to do with whether you're rich or poor, male or female, slave or free, educated, uneducated, a king or a slave. None of that factors in. We're all by nature children of wrath. No one was more deserving than the other. God reminds Israel of that when he says why he called them. They were no better than the nations. There's nothing about you or me that makes us more deserving. Salvation is all of God. His grace is mercy. It's unconditional. But God. 
Second, about God's grace, it's sovereign. The Bible speaks of God's outpouring in that way. Look at verse 5. Verse 1 has reminded us we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. A dead man can't raise himself. Someone who's spiritually dead can't bring about spiritual life. Just as Lazarus lay dead and cold in the tomb, we were spiritually dead and cold, dead to the things of God. The only reason Lazarus came forth from the tomb was because he was called forth from the tomb. God said, let there be life, and he went from dead to alive. And God is telling us here in Ephesians 2, we went from spiritually dead to spiritually alive only because God said, let there be spiritual life. God made us alive. That's resurrection. No one, whenever you speak of resurrection, contributes anything to their resurrection. We are always passive in a resurrection. And here God is the worker, the instigator, the sovereign worker that brings life where there was death. And it's a gift. And it's a glorious gift. The word for gift here is like an offering. It's something you don't deserve. You're not getting, it's just something you give. Something that someone's not even looking for. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. We know that verse well. And it's not our doing. When it says, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, it's referring to everything that's gone before. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is a gift. Being saved is a gift. And it's telling us faith is a gift. We are saved by grace through faith and that is a gift. In a dead, simple state, unresponsive to the things of God, but God enabled us to express faith in Jesus. We can only express faith in Jesus once we've been given life. A dead man can't say anything. A dead man can't reach anywhere. But God brings life. God does a resurrection. God brings a regeneration, a new birth, and we reach out to Jesus. By the grace of God alone gives us life through the Spirit so as to be responsive to the gospel. So when I sat with my dad on the end of the bed and prayed, the Bible is telling me I truly prayed. I truly believed. It was an act of my will. But that was only because of the grace of God. Before I was spiritually dead, but he gave me life. Before I had a heart of stone, but he gave me a heart of flesh. Before the things of God were a stench, but by the Spirit of God they became a sweet aroma. God changed me. God didn't force anything on me. God changed me so that I looked to Christ. I longed for Christ. I grieved on my sin. And so I saw Christ, came to him and clung to him. And so when I stand before God on that final day and into all eternity, I'm not going to be taking any credit and say, oh, I'm so glad I signed the deal. I'm so glad that I made the crucial decision. 
I will worship him. That by his grace, he gave me the gift of salvation and the gift of faith that brought me to Christ. I needed a resurrection. I needed a gift. I needed faith. Hebrews 12.2 reminds us Christ is not just the perfecter of our faith. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Romans 12.3 tells us that God gives each of us the measure of faith as he assigns it. And Philippians 1.29, it is God who has granted us faith. And then he says he's also granted us to suffer. Hebrews 12.2, Christ is the author of our faith. Romans 12.3, God gives us the measure of faith as he assigns it. And Philippians 1.29, it is God who has granted us faith. And again, we see salvation as a sovereign work of God because it's a work of creation. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Been very grateful to Jeff for a lot of wonderful help he's been giving me. He's a, he's a workman. But when he goes out to his shed, none of his tools are contributing. None of his nails are jumping around. None of his saws are saying, I'll do my bit. He's the workman. He comes. He does the work. The nails are passive. The wood is passive. The, the steel's passive. He is the workman. And God is the workman. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, loving the world, and God came, the great heavenly workman, and took hold of us. He's the potter, we are the clay. And he did a creative work. That word there, created in Christ Jesus, that word create is only ever used of God because it's only God can create in this way. It takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Two things that Ephesians 1-3 to are essentially doing again and again. Praise to God, glory to God for his creating work of bringing new life, of bringing spiritual life of reaching out into a dead and simple world and bringing forth new creations, new men and women alive in Christ. And so verse 10 tells us God's grace was a work of creation in your life. Only by grace have you gone from being a child of wrath to created anew in Christ going from being spiritually lifeless to being alive and spiritually loving the things of God. All the glory goes to the workman and he's God. You began your Christian life. You continue in your Christian life. You persevere in your Christian life because of the workman, the father who from eternity set his love upon you and created you in Christ. And so knowing our, what we were like before we were saved, dreadful. Here we see God's unconditional grace. It had to be. Here we see God's sovereign grace. It had to be. And now we see in this glorious ways God's abundant grace. For before we loved wickedness and sin, 
The first we see is abundance because God's grace in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. If we could see ourselves as we were sinful in our sinful nature, I'm certain from the teaching of Scripture we would despise one another if we could see it with holy eyes. And yet God set his heart upon us in, his, in our wickedness. And it had to be rightly mercy that is rich. We were by nature children of wrath. And how rich was it? God gave his own son to die on the cross to bear that wrath that God could show us mercy. That's abundant. We were enemies of God. We fought against God in our flesh, but God's love was great. He set his heart upon us even before the world began that through Christ he would make us holy and blameless. God's abundant grace that is rich in mercy and it is great in love We've seen too it's abundant because we share in Christ's resurrection, verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. We share in the resurrection of Christ by the grace of God from a terrible, dreadful state being transformed into a glorious state. But it's abundant further still because we don't stop with Christ's resurrection. We share in his ascension. Verse 6 goes on and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Let's remember what that means. Look with your Bible back to chapter 1, verse 20. As we see the power that is at work in us that worked in Christ, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And what did we just read? In chapter 2, verse 6, of God's abundant grace, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. There is no greater throne than the throne of Jesus. There is no highest throne than the throne of Jesus. Your royalty, part of a royal family, royal priesthood, is far greater than anything Charles, William or George will ever know. For it's in heaven and endures forever. You are seated with your all-glorious, all-powerful King and brother, Jesus Christ, in the heavenly realms. That is your status. That is your status. One day you're going to receive a crown. One day we will reign with him in the age to come. Earthly kingdoms will pass away, but the royalty that you and I share and now endures forever. That's abundant grace. Whatever troubles you may face now, whatever foes you may face now, no one can displace you from that position. The devil will do all he can. The suffering, persecution, all these things will come, but they can never displace you from your position in the heavenly realms. God has decreed it. God has raised you and seated you. And it goes on. It's like on TV, but there's more. If you look down to verse 7, 
We haven't just been seated in the heavenly realms. Verse 7, God gives us a reason so that in the coming ages he might show. So that in the coming ages he might show. That's the love, that's the heart of God has done all this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We can't even begin to imagine what is to come. But there it is glorious. It's abundant joy. It's bliss. And God has done it. God has saved you because he wants to pour out his grace, his immeasurable grace and kindness upon you forever. He wants you to delight in him and know his goodness. He wants to show us that. God united us by grace to his son. Because that is his destiny for you. That's his longing for you. And finally, it knows no end. Because that age to come will never end. Because Christ reigns forever. God's grace is immeasurable. Which means once you've been there a thousand years like an amazing grace, the bucket hasn't lessened. God's grace just keeps overflowing and overflowing into all eternity he longs to wash you with his grace, fill you with joy, bring you gladness and bliss. All he has done this through the gift of his son. From one day to the next in eternity, our hearts are going to be so thrilled and in awe of God that we're going to just delight to praise him and worship him. Everlasting delight. And so God's grace is abundant. As I've grown as a Christian, as I've grown in my understanding of the Bible as a Christian, it's coming to acknowledge these truths, these things that we see in the Bible this morning that have caused me to see that God's grace is far bigger, grander, greater than I ever imagined. Salvation is all of God. There is no work that I can credit to myself. God gets all the glory. God's love is truly higher, wider, and deeper than we will ever be able to grasp. So finally and briefly, how do we respond? Verse 10. We are work, God's workmanship created on Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, prepared beforehand that we should walk in him and them. And that's where the rest of the book, once we get past chapter 3, is going to take us. It's going to show us what the good works are. It's going to show us what the life that God has prepared for us to live looks like. But already we can just see, once we have been saved by grace, before we were spiritually dead, our lives were marked by trespasses and sins. We lived to please the world, the devil and the flesh, but that all changes. The grace of God comes. We are born again to do good works. Having been made righteous, we pursue a righteous life. A godly life will be the mark of the way we live. For as the unsaved person walked in their trespasses and sins, so the saved person walks in righteousness and good works. And that's what's going to be explained to us as we move further. Have you acknowledged what the Bible says about what you were like before you were a Christian, before you were saved? Have you grasped the grandeur of the grace of God? And is it thrilling our hearts to the praise and glory of his name?
because that's the constant little refrain that keeps popping up. God is teaching us these things, telling us these things to thrill us and to magnify his name. And the way we live is just an overflow as we give glory to him. I'll pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, the world is full of the devil's lies. Lord, the world around us teaches us untruths. Lord, our own flesh distorts truth in us. So, Father, we thank you that as we come back to your word this morning, you place glorious truth before us. And so, Father, we praise and thank you that you have given us new life in Jesus, that Jesus bore the wrath for us on the cross. And who are we that one day we shall be brought into your glorious presence, Lord, with great joy forevermore? And so, Father, please encourage us by these words. Please go before us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.